This is the West Side King's Church podcast, where we aim to encounter and embody the surprising grace of Jesus. Our conversation this evening, as we sort of work our way through um, this sort of this sort of model that that we get. Um, of 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 Tove churches from uh, from Scott McKnight and Laura Barringer's book Church Called Tove, we're we're looking at a concept that they they push in the book, which I really really like, um, but I think has been hugely challenging to um, well has been hugely challenging to to the contemporary kind of evangelical church structure is this idea of being of being people first right uh, as a church, which sounds on one level really obvious um but when when you hear that idea of people first as, as we sort of kind of ease into talking about that what does that what does that mean to you yeah i mean like you said it seems like it should just be really obvious you go in into you know pastoral ministry you go into pastoral care and it's just well, of course it's people first you can't mm. you can't uh you can't do this without people. Um, but, but I think you're right there. There are certain elements like that you have to consider, like what does people first actually mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, I think it is having a set of values that reflects, um, that people are the most important thing, you know, church called Tove, um, it talks about how nurturing empathy, which you entice and talked about and compassion and grace. Um, and, and, and specifically this chapter talks about um, sort of resisting that idea um, to see church primarily as an institution. So mm. I think when it, we, we think about putting people first, it's well, what is it not right? What, like looking at it and saying, people need to be the priority over and above mm-hmm. what the other parts of this are. And and that's so, so they use this term, which I've heard in a few places and I think is, is really worth being aware of but this notion of, of what's called institutional creep. So, yeah. so you, and, and this is not just something that the church struggles with, right. But you, you, you have this, this organization and the organization sets up to do uh, particular things you know it could be you know a coffee shop so it sets up to to serve coffee to people it could be an airline so it sets up to you know transit people from one place to another there's a whole host of things or it could be a church it sets up to introduce people and call people into the way of Jesus and live out his kingdom and and then what happens after a while is the institution eventually ends up thinking of itself as more important than than the than than its purpose and goal that it's set up for so you know all of a sudden you know we, we're here to serve customers coffee and you start forgetting that and the and, and you know you start deciding well we don't care about the customers anymore or you know or in church cases like like when empathy or compassion grace various of these qualities start to become secondary to the church achieving its mission you know so uh, it might be you know this church wants to build a building this church wants to grow to a particular numerical size this this church wants to have a particular um you know we talked on on sunday morning about worship you know the church might have a particular aim or goal in worship and 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 what starts to happen is the the people that are part of the church become secondary to getting that particular thing 
done for want of a, a better expression. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that you use the that term institution creep, because um, I think what happens when we have institution creep is that it leaves us with the notion sort of that it's optional to have empathy, compassion and grace, mm -hmm. that those are things that we can kind of turn up and we can turn down just dependent on how valuable they are. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, if it if, if empathy fits here, then great. But if it doesn't, if it's getting in the way of mm -hmm. me reaching kind of you know, the, my goals, then I can kind of just turn that one down or I can omit it for a while. Yes. And I think also with, with institution creep, um, we will always have a different set of rules of who belongs and who mm. doesn't. Um, and we start to see people and evaluate people based on how they serve the institution. Mm -hmm. um, so productivity, talent, high capacity, um, even extroversion um, mm -hmm. oftentimes is, is held up as a, as a higher standard than, than some of the other things, you know, extrovert versus an introvert, right? Because mm -hmm. um, those are characteristics that are good for programs. They're good for institutions um, mm -hmm. and maybe they're easy to measure. Yes. Too. Yeah. Yes. And, and so, and that's an interesting thing, isn't it? About how do you, as an organization, reach your goals and how do you then know whether you're reaching your goals um, and then what starts to happen is you start to hire people you start to promote people you start to value people who are better at helping you reach your goals than not reach your goals um you know so uh let's say your goal is that we're going to you know i'm trying to think Let, let's keep it tied into you know sunday morning for example um when we're talking about worship you know there's a lot of churches out there are looking at the sort of the model that we see from organizations like hillsong and and bethel music and elevation music so churches where the band become recording artists right so mm -hmm. if you decide you know hey um that's our goal for a church right so we're going to produce an album immediately that will start to shape the type of people that you want involved in your worship band and additionally you it will then shape the type of people you don't want involved in your worship band so you don't want you know you don't want that drummer that's going through a messy relational situation because like there's always all this pastoral work to do with them so let's leave them aside and we'll and, and we'll do something else um if you're in a situation where you know you want to grow your church to a particular number of people then th that's always going to be slowed down and i think you could speak to this from a pastoral care point of view the more pastoral care you need to do of people the 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 slower you'll get your your goal i say in inverted commas yeah. achieved would that be fair to say yeah i think you know i think that's exactly right and i think sometimes that's why we lean so heavily on programs and sometimes we will default to, to programs and it's not that programs are inherently, you know, all bad or anything like that. You know, there are, there are good things about programs and there are great mm. programs that can run, but I think too often we will default to programs like, you know, uh, well, if we can get all this one kind of person in a group, in a room, we mm. can set a program that they have to follow. Mm. Um, and we can get them from point A to point B and move them along this program. And then hopefully at the other end of it, we will have achieved their result, the result we want. Mm. And we will feel like, you know, we've, we've succeeded because this person has completed the program. But the problem with that is that people, you know, I, people don't 
exist in isolation. Mm. Um, they, and it requires proximity to people to understand, mm. I think, what the needs are. So the problem where programs, um, that happens with programs is it assumes a lot of things about people and mm. people come in as full human beings with stories and backgrounds and, and all sorts of, and all sorts of, you know, th things to them and intricacies. And when we don't have proximity to that, when we, when we stand at a distance and sort of insert a program, um, instead of being with people, um, truly being with people, the end result, it might make us feel better that we've, you know, checked a box, but I don't know that it meets the needs quite as well yeah. as actually, um, you know, being with people, Brian and I had a conversation, we're leading, um, uh, conversations on grief in November. Mm -hmm. And we had a good conversation, um, about grief and about the art of being with people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it really is an art of being with people. It, it seems that's just a really intuitive thing to do, but it's not, mm -hmm. um, it's not always intuitive and it requires that word that I use was, which was proximity. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, you look at Jesus and so many of the stories there and so many of them had to do with the proximity to people, you know, the mm -hmm. woman at the well, you know, and Zacchaeus is up in the tree. I mean, he tells him like he, I need you to come down because I have to have mm. dinner with you. Right. Or he mm. walks through a crowd and is so close to people that a woman can reach out and touch mm. him. Right. And so mm. this proximity piece, I think is just so important when it comes to caring for people. And I think institutions that creep, I, I, I think that they're not all bad, but that creep is what contributes, mm. I think to us, backing away from people it, it creates the distance between us and people and it and it doesn't happen you know overnight mm. it, it, it's called the creep because it actually <laughs> creeps in it we compromise bit by bit um mm. we find ourselves uh, uh unable to avoid it because we don't really see it coming well so then that's a that to me seems like a really interesting you know point for to not miss is that because it's a creep, it happens slowly. It, it happens gradually. And and actually, for, for many of the people involved in it, it probably happens unintentionally. So mm. so you take, let's, let's talk exclusively about church, because that is what we're talking about in the series. I know a lot of churches that have lost their way and have become highly institutionalized to the extent that they're hurting their congregants, the congregants that don't fit the bill that they're looking for end up, you know, being elsewhere. I've, I've had situations where, going back to my time in England, people turning up in our church, Christians turning up in our church and saying, like, we've joined your church because we were at this other church. And the demands on us at this other church as to what they needed us to be, what they needed our availability to be, was beyond what we could cope with in our life right now. So we've left and come somewhere else. So so I remember talking to this young couple and essentially to be considered, you know, kind of really committed to the church, the attendance requirements, the involvement requirements were so high and they just started a family and they're like, we can't be out this many nights in a week and both have jobs and look after our family. 
And when they kind of approached this subject with the leadership, there was it was either you're in and with us or you're not with us, therefore you're out. So they left the church and, and came to the church that I was part of the pastoral team um, on and, and we were just happy to have anybody come. So we had no standards at all. And <laughs> but, but, but the funny thing was, I, I knew the leaders of the church that they'd come from. And they were, they were like good people. You know, they, they wanted, they wanted people to find Jesus. They wanted to impact their community for Jesus. They wanted to see the kingdom of God happen. They fundamentally believed that following Jesus was a better way of life for your health, for your way of being. But so, so I think if you said to them, yeah, but you've had institutional creep, something's happened that you're now not valuing people over your, your program, that would have yeah. been shocking to them to even suggest that that was the case because it just sort of happens subtly and gradually, right? Yeah. And I'm not trying to make excuses for people there, but I think it's important that we don't, it feels to me anyway, like it's important that we don't say, oh, these people have intentionally gone out to not care about people. Yeah. Well, and I think that's sort of the alarming thing about it and why it needs attention. Because, you know, if we saw it coming, if it was something that you easily look at and be like, oh, you know, I noticed that we're doing this, you know, we got to stop. I mean, that would make it so much easier if it was mm -hmm. that noticeable, right? What makes mm -hmm. it dangerous, what makes it insidious is that you don't notice. It's those just small incremental changes. And mm -hmm. that story that you just shared, um, I think you know, it reminds me that we always make statements, um, whether that is consciously or subconsciously about who belongs. Mm. Um, and I think we, there's so many times we don't even realize that we are, we are making that statement, mm. but it's everything from the types of programs we offer, the times we offer them, right? You know, you, mm. you, you offer, offer Bible study only on, you know, weekday, uh, during the daytime, right? Mm. Well, you're making the assumption um, who can be there. You are, mm. you're actually programming in, in order to, to bring in a specific mm. demographic yes. um, and, and making a statement of, well, we, we don't care if, you know, mm. this other demographic can't make it at this time. Right. Mm. Whereas if you're offering multiple times for, for Bible studies, that's just an example, but even, you know, our building talks about who belongs and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Is your building accessible? Um, hospitable yeah. communities. It, like, there's just so many ways the list could go on and on about all those, all those ways that we consciously or subconsciously make statements of, mm -hmm. of who belongs in our community. Yes. And, and, and even, and like you say, even, even the building thing, I think about that so often when I go to coffee shops, it's amazing how, yeah. You can sort of tell. Um, Phil Odd and I met at a coffee shop just the other day there, and every single seat in the coffee shop was decidedly uncomfortable, and all of the tables rocked ever so slightly. And, and we decided by the end that this was done purposefully because the coffee shop's not that far from the university. And we were like, mm -hmm. I think they're trying to avoid students arriving here and just spending the whole day here. <laughs> you know, whereas you go into another coffee shop and there's sofas everywhere and it's almost like they're saying to you, yeah, stay as long as, long as you want, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, and now you mentioned a story just there, Um in your in your examples just a few moments ago, which I think is really interesting parallel, the, the story of Jesus walking through the crowd and, you know, the, the woman that reaches out and touches him. I, I think, you and I'm always careful of taking a story out of its context yeah. and trying to apply it to a modern problem. Uh, but at the same time, I think that's what 
use of the Bible asks of us. Like, what does this mean for us today? But, you know, so that story from Mark chapter 5 is a really fascinating one. Jesus is approached by uh, an influential character in the community. Uh, you know, Jesus, we know, is a character who is perceived as problematic by the community. You know, he's he's causing trouble in various contexts that he, he lives in. But one of the senior sort of characters in the community, a synagogue leader, comes to Jesus and asks for his help um, because his daughter is sick. And so this is the kind of thing that Jesus would be really helpful for Jesus's mission. Mission, you know, get a get yeah. a high-ranking local official to be on side with you. <laughs> uh, so it, you know, for for program Jesus, <laughs> this is a really good yeah. opportunity. It's a really great moment. This is what we're here for. Get this. We'll get this whole town on side if we get this the synagogue official on board. Um, but while walking through the crowd, this this woman reaches out and touches Jesus and he stops the whole program to spend some time with this with this woman and mm -hmm. he heals her the net result of the delay is they now hear that the little girl that they were initially setting out to help has died um now the way the story ends Jesus raises the little girl and but Mark makes this really interesting point because that, that the girl was 12 years old and the woman who had been sick had been sick for 12 years and it's it's interesting how Mark wants to point that that's the feature of Jesus that that is significant here. Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered that this is the this is the influential person's daughter and this this poor person who has no influence they're both the same in Jesus's eyes. Uh, but I don't know if if you resonate with that story but to me the story feels like an example of of Jesus modeling what avoiding institutional creep looks like. <laughs> He treats people first. And this woman who could be perceived as a hindrance to achieving the goal is treated with exactly the same focus as the quote unquote goal itself. I mean, I mean does that yeah. resonate? Yeah. And like you said, um, kind of as you're introing that, like, you know, it would be good for the program um, if Jesus would just, you know, get on with it and, yes. and perform, you know, a miracle and, and I, you know, I, I can understand, you know, sort of that that line of thinking because I even experienced that in terms of, you know, not that I'm performing miracles, um, but just like, you know, you get caught up in the program of stuff, right? You get, it's like, well, I can't return that call yet because I've got this and this and this to get to, right? So, mm -hmm. so I get that how how it creeps in there and and how. Um, yeah, just how distracting it can be. It, mm. There's um, just thinking of this is how many times um, Jesus is moved to compassion. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there was, there was, uh, what did it say that, that um, the understanding of compassion, the word being used for mm. compassion is sort of like this uh, describes an inner organ turning with pain. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Human suffering. Yes. So that always just really captures me, this idea that, you know, again, with that proximity and, and that we're talking about with Jesus, mm. and it's like, if you don't have that proximity, right, mm. that that compassion is removed. I mean, I, I can see something on a television or I can hear a story, but that actual mm. inner organ turning with pain, you know, yes. when seeing human suffering. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, 
the the Greek word for compassion is splanknizomai, and splanknid is literally your intestines. That's right. really, the splanknid is your intestines. So so there is. I mean, yeah. I mean, just to to resonate with what you're saying, the the i the Greek idea of emotion is something very of of compassion rather is something very visceral. You know, it, it's something that happens to you. So so whereas what we tend to do is we we think of compassion as as very much a a, a cerebral idea, don't we? It's it's a thought process yeah. that Jesus has. Yeah. He looks at these crowds and he has a thought process. And I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't have thoughts about people that need compassion, but but it's interesting that the description, and you don't want to overplay that because that's how words work, but that rooted yeah. somewhere in that description is that something is happening to you, you know. But but that's true in English as, as well. I mean, literally, compassion is a Latin word. So we go from, from Greek, we've t- it feels like we're back in seminary now, Kristen, doesn't it? But we go from Greek splanknizomai, which is which is to be moved in your in your insides. You know, there's a painful yeah. res- visceral response. Compassion, the, the Greek, the the Latin com com means with, and and passion is you know we talk about the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the, the Christ. So so it's it, you know compassion is to suffer with that person. There's still an element of it having something visceral and real, and like you say, you know that's a television screen, you know, your your phone or, or tablet screen creates a, a, a lack of proximity. Um mm-hmm. and 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 I think in church life programs can create a lack of proximity. And there's a lot of excuses that we can create to t- create a lack of proximity. Um I you know it, it's easy uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I could say it like this, you know, I, I finished teaching sermons on Sunday morning and, and kind of mooch my way down off the off the front of the stage and see who wants to come and talk to me. And, and you never know who's going to want to come and talk to you at that particular moment to tell you something that's gone on in their week or something that they thought about your sermon or something that they thought about you. Um, and it would be, and, and sometimes I come away from those conversations and like, I'd say this, you know, and I mean this, you know, this isn't a good quality of me. But sometimes I come away and go, "Why do I do this?" <laughs> because you know, you're sort of tired and 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 exhausted from from teaching, and then somebody comes and they want to have some kind of harsh conversation with you. Yeah. But but I always try and tell myself that that sense of, and I'm no genius at this. Please, I'm not trying to do that thing where look at me, the great example. I've, I would very often rather run and hide. But but if I do run and hide then there's a sense in which I'm saying, oh, this is a program that we're delivering here at church, yeah. not a gathering of people wherein, you know, we as humans have responses to things and we want to talk to people about the responses that we have yeah. and and they don't fit in boxes and programs and stuff like that. And so I, I think there's it's difficult and I don't, there's almost a sense for all of us, there's that person at your workplace that you see them coming and you're like, oh, no. And, you know, we, 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 we all like to, to remove our proximity sometimes, don't we? Yeah, uh, and that just reminds me, like, it's a good reminder for me too, because uh, you're right, we, we do like to create kind of space, especially when we're uncomfortable, um, especially mm. when we don't have control or... And as part of the pastoral life, and um, I think something that's really important to remember is in this, and I remind myself all the time that like every person has two things. Every person has woundedness and every person has giftedness. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes when we're, we insert people just into programs and, and we, 
and we run that way, we can, we can lose both of those things. Mm. We can lose the story behind the person. Um, we can lose the ability to actually be with people in their woundedness and walk with them. And, you know, that's, it's part of being a pastor. And, and, and honestly, it's one of, one of the most sacred parts of being a pastor, mm. right. Is being able to walk with people in that. And then also you lose people's giftedness, right. Because it yeah. kind of puts people into a box and, and you miss those things. And so when mm. we talk about, you know, uh, uh Tove, part of Tove being a people first culture, mm. part of that is recognizing everybody's woundedness and, yes. and also recognizing everyone's giftedness and how we incorporate them into the life of the church, not just as people who show up on a Sunday and, mm. you know, consume a product and then leave, but people who are actually deeply embedded with within our church. And I don't think mm. we can do that. I don't think we can have people who are embedded within the fibers of the church if we don't understand people's woundedness and giftedness. Mm. I I mean, as you say that, I, I find myself, and this is not me extracting quotes from uh, deep memory, but I, I was this week as I'm prepping for this sermon coming up this Sunday, I was reading some sections of, uh, of Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, um, mm-hmm. Which is uh, pretty pretty heavy going work when he talks about community uh, in that. But one of the things he says about community, um, well, actually no, it's not it's not what he says about community. It's what he says about leaders of community. Um, and there's this line in it which uh, I'll just give part of the line and then he can unpack the rest on Sunday morning. But but he, he talks about he has this line where he says God hates visionary dreamers. Um, have you read Have you read this bit of Bonhoeffer? I don't know if you have or not. Um, you have, the book on, you have the book on your shelf because I borrowed yeah. your copy earlier this week because <laughs> I'd left mine at home. So uh, so I know you have it. And, uh, but, but he has this line, she's God hates visionary dreamers, um, which mm-hmm. is such a harsh statement because you think, well, that can't be right because we're always talking about vision and what's our dream. But, but then Bonhoeffer does this thing, which I think we could interpret into uh, institutional creep, where he says the problem is that the the person and he's writing in the 1930s so it's you know mm-hmm. he says he says the man who has a dream so forgive the sexism of it but he says he says the, the the man who has this dream of community he ends up loving that dream of community more than the community itself right, right. so so the problem that then happens is everyone that's in community or in your community is now judged by you the leader by how they're helping you get towards the dream that you have, right? Whereas Bonhoeffer, he, and he says, and eventually this person becomes an accuser of the community and ultimately an accuser of God and eventually an accuser of themselves, right? Uh, because people are, people now have a different function. Our, our take on what a person's doing in our community is different now because what's first is getting towards the visionary dream. And people now are ranked and assessed on whether they hinder that or whether they help with that and 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 Bonhoeffer basically says once you've gone down that line what you end up with is not a church it's not Mm -hmm. the Christian community it's not the community that God that God wants to call us to um so he then warns about having a vision of community that isn't aligned with with the biblical vision of what of what community is Uh, I mean pretty harsh but I think there's I mean, I'm a big Bonhoeffer fan, so I, I'm biased, but I think there's profound truth in in that. And that warning nearly 100 years later still seems very, very apt. Yeah. 
and it speaks to a bit of like our own, you know, our own discomfort. Like what is it about, you know, the, the programs or the institution, right. That we, we kind of keep getting pulled back over to. And, yes. and I think just to kind of go back, we, I think we said it a bit earlier, but it's part of that measuring goals that, mm. that you just mentioned as well. Right. Where yeah. it's just easier to measure those things. It's easier to, are we doing good or are we not doing so good? You know, <laughs> are we successful? It, it, and, and we get really uncomfortable when we can't yes. measure that. And yes. I mean, that's, that's all pastoral. You, you talk to any good therapist and a good therapist can't measure whether or not all of their people that they're seeing are doing well, mm, right? Like mm. if they, if, if a therapist measured how good of a therapist they were just based on how, you know, somebody comes and sees them, how they're doing at any given point, I mean, that could destroy you, right? Where mm. it, it, we, it's just a different measurement when mm. we're talking about, we're talking about people, when we're talking about mm. being with people, that, that art of being with people, right? And it, I think it makes us really uncomfortable not to have a measurement for that. And, and I think that's why the language of goodness becomes so important. Yeah. Because you're now saying, actually, we're, we're going to measure things differently. We're going to, we're, we're go that might affect our pace. It might affect our achievements. It might affect, uh, you know, a whole host of things. But, but we're not wanting to step away from that as a value that we, that, that we need and, and want to, to be primary. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you and I talked a little bit and he's, um, McKnight and Barringer raise him in the book as an example. We talked about um, Fred Rogers as, yeah. as a kind of modern example of, um, of somebody who pursued goodness as, as a way of being in an industry, you know, the media industry, which is not, you know, which is not well known for uh, for this. And, you know, so I think I said to you, uh, just when we were conversing before, that, that like I grew up in a context where we didn't, you know, Fred Rogers wasn't on British television. Um, I also didn't grow up in Britain for a good chunk of my life. So I've come to the Fred Rogers story late. Um, yeah. now, but tragically, you know, um, a couple of the really big children's TV people from when I was a kid um, have both been, you know, exposed as being pretty, like, well, has, has been prolific pedophiles uh, uh, with, with systemic programs of abuse happening as part of their TV shows. Right. So, so it's like, so I think, I said to you, I think I'm drawn to Fred Rogers and as an adult by this sense of, oh my goodness, there's still a TV presenter from people's childhood that's, that's good right um, yeah and i i said to you uh i i actually don't know that if like the entire human race can handle if something were to happen like like i think we cling to fred rogers being a very good person <laughs> i don't think we could we could handle yes. if there was a story of of, of something bad about yeah. fred i think we'd all be yeah. done <laughs> just pack up and go home <laughs> but but you picked up a quote um from yeah. uh well yes i'll let you um it was one of his coworkers, something that stood up to me. So it's sort of in this conversation, you know, I think it can be easy just to like say, oh, programs are bad and, you know, we're talking about greatness. So that means nothing, you know, nothing can be high quality. And you guys have spoken to this mm -hmm. on, on Sunday mornings as well. Like, we're not talking about, you know, doing poorly at things or not doing things well or not having good quality stuff. And, and mm -hmm. this quote um, in the book kind of speaks to this. And it's one of uh, uh, Fred Rogers coworkers. And she says that he was flawed, 
that mm. he was really, really great and that he is good. Mm. And what I love about that quote is that it, 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 it makes him human because it shows, you know, he has flaws. He's a human being. He's not superhuman. Um, he was great at things. You look at Fred Rogers, he had a television show. Tom Hanks mm. has played him mm. in a movie, right? Like there's greatness yeah, yeah. there. There's a great yeah. show. Um, he's famous, but that and he was good is a completely mm. separate category. And I really mm. it really resonated with me. And and that's and that's why I like this, even the series you're teaching about great to good. You know, it's very important to just to agree with you on that, that it's not, oh, well, let's just do everything average now. And that will, that will be what God wants. You know, Phil said it on Sunday morning, we want good music. You know, we want, mm -hmm. we want, it's just that, that we're not will, wanting to give up goodness in the process of being great yeah. preachers, you know, and, uh, and, and listen, I've been to churches where everything was done to a really average level and they, and they were still not good people, <laughs> you know. So I've been in churches where yeah. where people were people were hurt, people were ignored. The program came first, and they didn't do anything well, right? So so it's it very important to to really assert that sense that the quality of the the building, the media, the the worship, the teaching doesn't necessarily have to have any bearing on the goodness of you know you can have a you can have a, a church. Um, you know, I, I mean, it comes to mind, I was thinking about um, someone I, I watched, you know, and had a connection with very vaguely through social media. Um, and they went through a really tough time in their life. And they were a pastor in a smaller church, and they went through this tough time in their life. And it was the local megachurch pastor that he said, without him, I never would have got through it. And this megachurch pastor, you know, you would have heard of him, you know, the super glitzy kind of high profile church but but you know this this guy's going behind the scenes. That pastor's good. Like he he genuinely cares for people. And conversely, you could have a church that nobody's heard of, and and the pastor not put people first. So I, I really want to resonate with what you're saying. You, we can separate those two issues of of quality of product, for want of a, of a less horrible term. Um, you know where where we say actually, you know, firstly let's be good, and and from that goodness you know, let our skills and our gifts, but also our brokenness and woundedness all kind of mesh together to, to be the church, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, I think that's really well put. So in just kind of kind of tracking our way then through uh, McKnight and uh, Barringer's sort of advice, um, they talk about sort of putting some some pieces in play as mm -hmm. an organization, as a church, um, in order to to sort of help us be good and be people yeah. first. So so they talk about avoiding, they reference um, uh, Mitch Randall's work on kind of what he calls um, theological malpractice, which is to mm -hmm. fail to treat people as as image bearers of God, which again, I, I really I found that image quite that that metaphor really quite powerful. I don't know if you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, part of that is, you know, seeing people 
what they uh, say, develop Jesus like eyes for everyone, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're recognizing the humanness of people. We're recognizing that they're made in the image of God. We recognize mm-hmm. that, you know, being made in the image of God, that we have a vocation, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, and, and that we all have, you know, our place mm-hmm. in the church. We all have um, giftedness, like we talked about before. We all mm-hmm. have things that we can offer and things that we can bring to community um, and, and a people first type culture um, makes that the most important, you know, factor. It's, and then the, it also gets into how do we avoid the institution creep? So it outlines kind of five areas, mm-hmm. treat people as people um, and fold others into the community, recognize all people are made in the image of God, treat people as siblings and develop Jesus like eyes for people that treat people as, as siblings when, I don't know, like everybody has different relationships with their siblings. So I had to, get, <laughs> <laughs> my brother and I do not get along very much. We get along well now, but <laughs> at first I was like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but yes. you know, yes, treat, treat really... people like siblings doesn't necessarily narrow it down that yeah. much. does it? <laughs> so, so, so don't treat people like your siblings. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, exactly. But what I appreciate about it is that that's honest, right? Because like, you know, I didn't choose my sibling and there's times where we've gotten along and times where we haven't, right? But he was still part of the family and I'm still Mm. part of the family and we still have to function and find a way to be healthy within that family. If if we want to have harmony, if we want to be a people first family, then we have to function in a way that we both see each other's flaws and we see Mm. each other's giftedness and we see each other's woundedness. Mm. And it's like that in the church, right? We, you know, there are people that maybe outside of the church, they wouldn't be our, you know, our best friend or somebody that we would want to go out for lunch with, but, but when they're your sibling, Mm. Mm. we're asked to do something different with that, right? Where they are part of the family and we have to find a way to work with that and to honor the fact that they are an image bearer and um, just as much of a part of the family. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that uh, <laughs> there's that old saying, isn't there, that your friends you can choose and your family you're stuck yeah. with. And, and there's actually something, there is something profound in that sense of what if we did look at our church community as our family. Now, I think there's a lot of work needs to be done there from us as leaders. Like, let's talk exclusively about Westside for a while. Um, I, I think there's something for us to be done as leaders, but then also as a community to 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 maybe change our perception of what we're part of by being part of Westside King's Church. So um, is this something we just turn up to for a service once a week, or is yeah. it actually a church community that we want to be part of uh where we you know we connect to we serve in we grow in we meet people in like this there's there's different ways to do church as a person who comes to church uh, where you can just see it as a place you go to you know as a customer but there's also a way to look at it as a community and you know i think what happens often in church life which can then start to become cyclical of some of the unhealth of church life is when 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 me as a as a as a church member starts to see myself as a customer of the church then then and this sense of and if i don't get what i want exactly from this church i'll go somewhere else what then happens is um 
leaders then start to think, okay, how do we put on programs that ensure you'll keep coming here? But then in the process of putting on those programs to ensure you keep coming here, that doubles down on the idea that we're here to offer you a product that you'll like and want to keep engaging with, right? Whereas when you take on a family metaphor of church, which is a significant church metaphor in the New Testament, when you take on a family metaphor, it's kind of like, well, this is your family. So, you know, how do we grow towards being what we'd like to be rather than, I wonder if I can find a family that would better suit what I'd like a family to be like. And, you know, and we've all had that at some point in our lives. So you've went to your friend's house and decided, their family is distinctly cooler than your family and (laughs) you wish maybe maybe that was just my childhood no no I love my family but you know you've had that sense where you know you had that friend and their parents seem to take their their family on better vacations than yours or something like that and there's that desire to want to move families but we know we can't but one of the dangers that's happened with our with our privilege really in the modern context has been that you don't actually need to commit to a church. You don't need to commit to a family. It's actually quite easy to transition between communities, maybe because whatever we're doing there isn't entirely community. Uh, it's, It's something else. And therefore, moving churches becomes, you know, akin to moving banks or or supermarkets. Actually, I shouldn't say moving banks. I read a statistic recently that said you are more likely to change your marriage partner than you are your bank over the course of your life. So that's a, that's a, that's a stunning statistic. So yeah, maybe we need to go learn something from banks, you know, uh, Although I'm suspicious, the reason nobody changes banks is they're just so hard to deal with. Nobody. It's impossible. Yeah. No, I, I think that all that is so true. And and I do see that, you know, that cycle of offering programs and people wanting mm-hmm. programs. And so you offer more programs, right. And in, in, in an attempt to, to keep people happy and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I, I even know my own, um, you know, time going to church, you know, throughout my life, we've, we've been to a few and, you know, it, I, I could never look back and really say, did I ever feel, you know, growing up that, mm-hmm there was maybe one church that I would say that I felt like we were rooted in is that it was actual, Mm. you know, potential to be a family. And, Mm. um, and yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate, right? Because I think that there's so much more there. Mm. Um, And and sometimes that's part of, you know, being honest, that's sort of part of the feedback I've gotten, right? Because in a larger church, you know, we're not like mega church, but we're a bit of a larger church. And so mm. people can find it a little bit hard to, mm. to get connected. So it really is a challenge to kind of resist going, okay, well, people really want to get connected. Um, and, and really being driven by, you know, the compassion of that and wanting to help people get connected and going, okay, well, let's just put in a program, right? Because that's gonna, yeah. that's gonna fix it. Um, I don't know that I have an answer necessarily. Um, there's, I mean, well, people, well, there's, e- there's even questions then about how, I mean, these are difficult questions to ask, but, but, you know, is it possible? Let me just ask the question and let's not even answer it. But the, but I think the, the question you know, is it possible that a church becomes too big? You know, is it possible that there are that there are reasons that we like very big churches, right? And those reasons might not be rooted in the gospel in the same level that we would like to think they are. You know, they, they look very successful from a from a 
secular point of view, uh, if you're going to metric things on volume of people turning up, then success would be a bigger church versus a smaller church. Um, uh, always worth noting that you know, and I've been to a lot of church conferences over my life, and it's interesting, based on the way people are introduced at church conferences, Jesus would never get invited to speak at a church conference, you know, because uh, the stories that this is how introductions go at church conferences. Uh, this is Kristen. Uh, Kristen's a fantastic leader. Uh, she has grown a church uh, of uh, 100 people to 3,000 in the last three years. And, uh, you know, she's got these amazing programs and she's uh, on the mayor's speed dial. And we're really glad that Kristen's here to speak to us today. Right. And I often think when I hear these intros, they wonder how they would do Jesus. This is Jesus. Um, he uh, he has 12 people. Uh, one of them is plotting to kill him. Uh, he did <laughs> preach a good sermon once. 5,000 people came. He ended the sermon in such a way they all left in one day. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, it just, he started some riots. Uh, a few people tried to kill him after he's first. You know, like Jesus wouldn't fit the bill of what we would say is successful. And yeah. so there's a part of me thinks we as Christians need to be nervous about a, a system, a model, an understanding that Jesus would look uncomfortable within. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that requires creative thinking then from us to say, okay, well, this goes back to good or great. If, if we cannot pastorally care for, if we cannot missionally work out our calling with this sort of volume of, of, of people or, or whatever, then maybe we need to think more creatively about how we as a community work. Does, does that make sense? Um, yeah. And, yeah. and I don't have answers to that, but I think that these, what we notice is the bigger numerically your organization gets, the risk of institutional creep is higher. Right. Uh, the, ins the, the risk of, of, of losing people, ironically enough, it becomes easier to be something other than people first, the more people that you have around, because it somehow seems to be more justifiable to say, well, we can't change all of this for one person, right? because we've got this thing. And that's that little bit of institutional creep, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Bob Osborne used to always say um, when we were having meetings that that God counts people like this. Here's one person, oh, and here's another one person, oh, and here's another one person. <laughs> he says God never counts people in tens, twenties, and hundreds. Every single person is a person, right? And that person has their giftedness and their woundedness and their story and their connection. And and if we start lumping people into groups, like you know this. There's certain I've heard this, I've read this in books, I've 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 heard this in conferences. You know, there's churches out there that that divide up their congregation statistically into what they call giving units, right? right? So so it's like it's like this family, well, they probably all give together. So they essentially are one, even though there's five of them, they're one giving unit. And you're thinking, like, goodness me, what a horrendous way to uh you know, to, to look at a congregation and to lose the image of God in a person. You know, the fact that there's Christian writers out there talking this way about congregations, like, you know, here's a helpful model to help you look after your church. Well, I don't think you're looking after a church at that point. You're doing something yeah. else entirely. You know, when I go to get my oil change in my car, you know, I, I'm not actually overly bothered, you know, if, you know, if, if the oil change guy 
cares about me. I just like him to do a really good job for the money that we stated and agreed on. And as long as my car's looked after and he's paid, we're all happy. And he looks at me as a customer and he doesn't, you know, if I turn and go having a really rough day, you know, he doesn't need to respond to that. He can, you know, here's your receipt. See you later. But when churches start to think that way, that, you know, that all these, you've started to lose the image of God, knowing that any one person comes to church on a Sunday morning, for example, or a, or a home group or a seminar, they might be bringing all sorts of difficulty and woundedness with them that day. And then the ironic thing is you could talk to them for five minutes and the very next person that comes has a similarly difficult story. It's not like, well, I've done my one and that's me for today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, you know, Bob said, you count, God counts one by one by one. Also, like you were saying, you know, how we interact with people is one by one by mm. one. And uh, yeah. Yeah, most, those programs, those large groups, it removes that, that oneness, that, that individual yeah. woundedness and giftedness. So, well, it, well, it can do, it can do, yeah. you know, and I think yeah. that there's, again, I think with, with the right um, approaches, the right attitudes, you know, I have, like I say, I have been to large churches that have great community connection. You know, um, so so we've also got to be careful of not assuming that, oh, but if there was only 50 of us, we'd have this sorted. Uh, You know, I I went to I went to a church once I was traveling and and I had a, um, you know, I had a a free evening. There was a church service on. I went. There was 40 people there. Nobody spoke to me. I went and left. (laughs) And and so, you know, and then conversely, I've I've wandered into large churches and been invited to people's houses for supper. Right. So so, you know, again, we've got to be careful that if we're saying the number metric isn't as significant as we think it is, that means that small isn't necessarily better than bigger and big isn't necessarily worse than smaller and vice versa in all the combinations. Yeah, and Scott and Laura and um, Berenger and there in the book, um, they do make that distinction saying, listen, you know, sometimes this is the way it does work out just because of the nature of things. But like you're saying, David, mm. you know, we've been to small churches that do it well. We've been to small churches that don't. Yeah. We've been to big churches that do it well. We've been to big churches that don't. So, yeah. you know, ultimately we're all going to, mm. we're all str- struggling somewhere or another. So and uh, Well, you know, and we know that's true in our lives, you know. We we all have had good experiences at Starbucks and bad experiences at some yeah. you know local you know standalone coffee chain and vice versa right it's you know the problem is the people you deal with are broken as well right and uh, you know and and if your church leaders are broken and your church is full of of broken people but also everybody's gifted that's going to create complexity sometimes isn't it mm-hmm. so well Kristen thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thanks, dude. Always, always enjoy it.